Good morning. It's so good to see all of you here today. Even Jerry is quite good to see Jerry. A very talented sculptor was being watched by a group of visitors as he chipped and chiseled away at a huge block of, of marble. He was creating a statue of Abraham Lincoln, and after watching what was going on there for a while, a little boy asked his dad, how did he know that President Lincoln was inside that block of marble? That's a good question. But since it's Mother's Day, let's, let's personalize it in a little bit different way. Who is inside your child just waiting to be revealed? Missionary, maybe. Maybe a president. A loving mom or dad. Teacher. Business executive, maybe. Maybe even a preacher. You see, there's no doubt that the desire of all Christian parents should be to lead their children to become godly adults. But achieving that goal is not getting any easier Dealing with children on a regular basis can be rewarding and thrilling, but it can also be frustrating and stressful, particularly in the culture in which we live. Most parents and teachers agree that the most frustrating time occurs when a child reaches adolescence. And the child begins to desire some independence. And, and you know, most of us here, except for Jerry, can remember that. But the child's not yet ready to handle these kind of things on their own. As parents try to find it, and it's hard, it's a balance you've got to achieve between freedom but also control. And during this battle in the family, sometimes friction can arise and home life can be tough. Writer Mark Twain had uh, three daughters and one son. And apparently he he was speaking about the son when he wrote these words. When your child reaches the age of 12, you should put him in a barrel and feed him through a knothole. Then when he turns 15, you seal up the knothole. Now I must say, that is not the philosophy of our children's department here at Maple Grove, but some parents may understand the sentiment. While adolescent times can certainly be stressful, they can also be some of the most rewarding when it comes to parenting. But there's no doubt that these formative years will shape your child in many, many ways. This is interesting to me. Research has revealed that by the time your child is around 12 years old, there are going to be three very important perspectives have already been pretty much formed and determined in that child. How they regard authority, or if they regard it at all, who their friends will be, And whether they're going to be givers in life or takers in life. Now, as Christians, I think the key to remember is that from the beginning, the child's life, you're not trying to raise a child, hear me, who will honor you and make you look good. Those are terrible motives, and the child will pick up on that really, really fast. From the beginning, we should be in the process of committing our children to God. And then when they're older and we release them, we're not turning them loose into the jaws of a wicked and crazy culture. No, we're committing them into the loving hands of God. 
who will help them thrive in such a culture. That's the difference. The Old Testament records a dramatic story of a mom named Hannah. And this woman committed her child to God even before he was born. And then she kept the promise, kept it faithfully, literally giving up her son Samuel to God while he was still a young boy to, for the service of God and his kingdom. So on this Mother's Day, I, I, hope, I think we can learn some lessons from Hannah. And, uh, and I want you to listen carefully as we talk about how to commit our own children, maybe even grandchildren in some cases, to the Lord. In Old Testament times, the greatest calamity a Hebrew woman could ever experience was to be childless. And this was the case with Hannah. Children are viewed as a blessing from the Lord. Psalm 127.3 says, Sons are a heritage from the Lord. Children are a reward from Him. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are sons born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. But at this point, the Hebrews made a crucial uh, false assumption. They thought, well, if children are a blessing from the Lord, then if you are childless, then you must be cursed by the Lord. And that was not the case. But Hannah's quiver was empty. And this morning, I want you to see three things. I want you to look at Hannah's problem, the promise that she makes, and the commitment that went along with that promise. And then at the end, there's three, I think, really helpful applications for us here on this Mother's Day. Are you ready? All right. First, Hannah's problem. It was bad enough to be childless, but Hannah's pain was confounded because she had a dysfunctional home life. Her husband, Elkanah, claimed that he loved her, but she was not his only wife. He had another wife because Hannah lived in an irreligious time. People just kind of did whatever that they wanted to do, even though God was known of, at least the prophets of old spoke of him. But generally, it was a tough time. A lot, a lot of obedience, not a lot of commitment to God. The people of Israel had backslidden from the high standards of morality and spirituality that Moses had established and had slid into the imitation of the culture in which they lived. Polygamy was tolerated by the Mosaic Law, and the Old Testament made it clear it was not the order at all because it put such tremendous strain on the parties involved. And adding to that problem, uh, the other wife that uh, her husband had, um, she had several children. And you kind of get the impression as you read the text that she was not afraid to call attention to the fact that Hannah was childless and she wasn't. She probably claimed that Hannah was one of God's favors since he made fun of her because he, she had not blessed, been blessed with children. First Family 1.6 says, Because the Lord had closed her womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. And this went on year after year. But whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her even more till she wept and wouldn't even eat. But I want you to notice in the midst of this dysfunctional mess, I want you to see the promise that she makes. When she was in the house of the Lord praying, she prayed that God would grant her a child. And she'd done this over and over and over again. But this time she promised that if she were given a son, she would dedicate that child completely to the service of God. Now, this is a big deal. This, this is 
This is not just a commitment to raise the child a certain way. This was a commitment of the child into the care of the, the church of that day, and usually led by a priest. Look at verse 11. She made a vow, saying, O Lord Almighty, if you will only look upon your servant's misery and remember me, and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. For all the days. Now the Bible tells us that Hannah was not praying out loud necessarily, but she was moving her lips, probably praying quietly to herself. And uh, the priest, Eli, who wasn't the sharpest pencil in the box, he, uh, no offense to, to the priesthood, but Eli had some problems. He saw Hannah praying, and he thought, well, she's drunk. She's come into the temple here to pray, and, and, and uh, she's been drinking. Many Israelites had turned away from God in those days, and, and there apparently was not much heartfelt praying going on in the house of the Lord, or he would have recognized it maybe. 1 Samuel one fifteen says, Eli confronted her about this, and she explained that she wasn't drunk. Instead, she said, I've not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Look at verse 16. She said, do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I've been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. And in this case, Eli recognized her sincerity. And he said to her in verse 17, you go in peace. And may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. And the Bible goes on to say that God remembered Hannah and her prayer as she conceived and gave birth to a son. Verse 20 tells us in the course of time, she conceived and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, which means heard by God, saying, because I asked the Lord for him. And he heard me. But look at the commitment now. She's going to take this a little farther. I mean, she made this promise. She, but then now she's going to fulfill it to, every, to the very infinite degree. Because she dearly loved Samuel. Nevertheless, she loved God. From his birth, she prepared him to be used by the God had granted her an answer to her prayer. Verse 21 says, When the man Elkanah, that's her husband, went up with all of his family to offer the annual sacrifice to the Lord and fulfill his vow, Hannah did not go. She said to her husband, After the boy is weaned, I will take him and present him before the Lord, and he will live there always. There being in where the temple's located, Shiloh. And he said, well, do what seems best to you. The husband is kind of disconnected, I think. But he said, stay here until you've weaned him. Only may the Lord make good his word. So the woman stayed at home and nursed her son until she had weaned him. Now, God had given her the desire of her heart. And she knew she could show her appreciation to God by honoring her promise. As painful as that promise would be. Maybe if you're a woman sitting here today, you're thinking, how in the world, what a, what a difficult thing to do, much less voluntarily do. As surely as the Lord lives, I am a woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord, and I prayed for this child, she told the priest, and the Lord has granted me what I ask of him. So now I give him to the Lord for his whole life, and he'll be given over. Now, we don't know exactly how old Samuel was at this time. It appears he was at least old enough to, 
to, to take care of himself to some extent, and old enough to be a helper in the tabernacle. So I, I'm guessing he could have been anywhere from 8 to, to 9, maybe 10 years old, maybe a little older. But he was still very young for his mother to completely release the son that she loved so much. And it had to be hard for her since she could only see him once a year. That was when they went up for the annual sacrifice. First Samuel 2.19 says, Every year his mother made a little robe and took it to him when she went up with her husband to offer the annual sacrifice. Now, now can't you picture her working on this robe? I mean, every year she would spend time on it. It's a new robe. It would be an annual gift. And she's trying to wonder what he's doing and how things are going up there and trying to speculate how much has he grown since the last time I saw him. Can you imagine that? I mean, we rarely see this kind of, of attitude or commitment to God in this way. We don't see that much today. I mean, people may be radically committed to other things, you know, like jobs and, and uh, maybe um, you know, committed to a favorite sports team. But rarely do we see people willing to make that kind of sacrifice for God. Speaking of sports, I'm reminded of um, the woman who uh, was sitting alone in assembly hall. Hard to imagine, but she was by herself there at the start of an IU-Purdue game. And there was an empty seat next to her. And someone approached her and said, Ma'am, I've rarely, rarely ever seen an empty seat here in assembly hall, let alone when Purdue comes to town. Uh, whose seat is this? And the woman responded that, that, that she and her late husband had purchased these season tickets 28 years before, and this was his seat. And the man said, well, I mean, couldn't you find a friend or relative to come to the game with you? And she said, no, not really. They're all at, at my husband's funeral. I love those kind of stories. I just, <laughs> But you get the point. Unlike that woman, Hannah knew where her commitments really, really should be. And her ability to release her child to God should be a reminder to all of us as Christian parents. So, so how do we do this? Let's, I want to talk to you about how you can commit your child, maybe a grandchild. I don't know what your circumstances are. But here's how you can commit him to God. Our, our church, we don't sprinkle babies or baptize babies because they're not old enough to make a decision for Christ. It's been our commitment to baptize only adult believers. We're having a baptism right after this service, as some of you already know. Uh, but that's the pattern of the New Testament, was to baptize those old enough to understand what they were doing and to be able to make a confession of faith and trust in Jesus. However, we have over the years recognized that Many times we had no way for parents to commit themselves and their children to God. So in the past, we periodically had what's called a, a baby dedication services. So we haven't had one for a long time, but, but usually it was on Mother's Day. And a simple ceremony, and, and the parents and the infants, would, they'd bring everybody together, and we'd pray over them, and, and I'd preach a message uh, similar to this one about parenting or whatever. And it was really kind of neat. And it occurred to me that we haven't had one for a while. And if, if some of you are wishing that we did have one, and you just let me know if you have a child that you'd like to, to more officially, in a sense, offer to God in a sacred kind of ceremony, then we would certainly arrange for that to be. We will see that that happens. It serves as a reminder that even from the beginning of a child's life, 
the parent's goal is to commit that child. Christian parent's role. I need to qualify that. Not, not just any parent. But a Christian parent's role should be to commit that child to the Lord. The minister at my, minister at my home church used to say that he, he was, um, even though he was brought up in a Christian home, he uh, in, indicated that they were very poor. They lived in Cincinnati. And, uh, uh, of course, the greatest joy he had, he said, was rising up and being able to see Kentucky across the Ohio River. Um, just thought I'd mention that, Jerry. Notice it was not, he, he wasn't interested in West Virginia at all. I mean, you can't see West Virginia from Lexington or even Cincinnati very easily. So. That's, that's not in the sermon. That's, as David would say, that's free, free, free. But anyway, he said, our parents never left us a lot of things. He had a couple of brothers and sisters, but there was no great inheritance. He said, my, my parents didn't leave me a farm or, or riches. He said, my parents left me a faith. And he carried that faith to the time when he went to see Jesus. You know, 40-some years preaching at my home church in Lexington. Now, if we could see things from God's perspective... All parents would want the same kind of thing for their children. You know, leaving a wealthy inheritance is nothing compared to leaving a heritage of faith. However, such a heritage is never left by accident. It only happens when parents have made a decision, we're going to commit ourselves to our children, but we're going to commit our children to God. And on this Mother's Day, let me, I want to suggest three ways that that commitment can be expressed. And I'd love to hear more from you if, if you'd like to see those kind of, of ceremonies and things where parents can, can, can dedicate their child to fish. I, I really would like to encourage you. Number one, you commit your child to God by prayer first. That's where it starts. In their book, Faithful Parents and Faithful Kids, Greg Johnson and Mike Yorkie compiled a hundred of, hundreds of interviews with Christian adults who were raised in Christian homes. And they were asked how their parents had pointed them to Christ. What did they do? What went on in their homes that led them to become Christians and stay Christian? Here's were, here's were just three of their answers. There were lots of answers in the book. One wrote, when my dad would pray with me at bedtime, he'd always ask God to help me make him a better dad. And that showed me he wasn't perfect and really wanted God's hand on his life. Someone else remembered just very simply, we always had family devotions. Someone else said, I'd often see mom and dad up early on their knees praying. And this evoked a great amount of love from me to them. And I know that they were praying for all of us kids. Now, my mom grew up in the church. My dad, uh, not so much. He started going to church because my mom went to church. And you can obviously see his interest was not Jesus Christ at that time. But once I came along... Uh, they, they took one look at me and realized they needed help. And uh, they were probably right. So when a pastor came and knocked on our door one day, and I was about four years old, and he said, well, 1957, so I would have been four years old. And he invited my parents to church. At that moment in time, the entire direction of my life shifted. Nothing was, nothing of this would, my life would not, be, I would not be here. I would, nothing about my life would be as it is today if my dad had pursued his own interests, which was building houses and making money, 
instead of coming to Southland Christian Church and becoming baptized into Christ and becoming faithful members of that congregation. Here was a man that wasn't interested in church at all. He ends up singing in the choir for years. You know, mom was involved teaching Sunday school in that church. Do you, do you see the connection here? How important it is for parents? The decision of what happens to your kids begins so much with what decisions you make. And I really want to encourage you. Hannah committed Samuel to God in prayer long before she released him to be God's servant. She willingly handed him to God. Prayer with your children, my children, is the first step in committing them to the Lord. Your kids need to hear that you know how to pray. They need to hear you pray. They need to hear you pray for them. And they need to know you are prayerfully praying for them whenever they don't see you. And God will answer your prayer. That's number one. You commit your child to God by prayer. Then number two, you lead your child to God by intent. I mean, that means deliberately. Not some accidental thing. And you don't just bring them to the church and let the church and the youth groups do your job for you. Parenting is full-time and you're responsible all the way around. I was raised in youth group. I was a boy scout. I did all these things. So my parents said, this is what you're going to do. But ultimately, they took responsibility. It's never an accident when a child is raised to honor God. Godly homes don't just happen. Do you, you do understand that? Especially the times that we live? This is how important it is. If you raise your child to know God... You know, there's no guarantee that he or she will always follow God faithfully because every individual is responsible for his or her own actions. But more often than not, children will follow in the parents' direction of life and in their desires for them. And this is especially true if you have a godly home and where God is talked about and praised and, and people are nice to each other and kind and there's joy and there's unselfishness. You know, when that's present... That just reinforces for the child that, you know what, this is a much better way to live than what the world is telling me that I should do. Kids are not stupid. They're intelligent beings longing and looking for examples that they can safely follow. And if they don't get those examples, they're going to find examples from others that they will follow. What is the most important thing a parent should want for their children? You know, some, some parents want a better life for their kids. And, and, and you know, that's kind of normal. You know, better life than they had. Some want their children to have plenty of stuff, material wealth, so they can live more comfortably than their parents did. But Jesus said in Luke twelve fifteen, You watch out. You be on your guard against all kinds of greed because a person's life, a man's life, does not consist in the abundance of, of their possessions. Other families, other parents on the other side is they want to raise their children to be accepted intellectually. They want them to go to a top college, make great grades. They want them to be able to you know, have all kinds of, of um, the, the perks that a good education can buy for them. But Solomon says in the Bible, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But fools despise the wisdom and discipline Scripturally speaking, Proverbs 1 7. Some parents want their children to be well liked and like to have plenty of friends and have everybody around them, no enemies. But 
Luke 6.26 says, Woe to you when all men speak well of you. Something's wrong somewhere. If everybody thinks you're wonderful. Many parents have all these things, and they also want them to be athletes and, and attractive, and, and, and they want them to marry an attractive spouse. But later, when Samuel became a prophet of God, and he was impressed with the appearance of a young man who had aspirations to be king. Remember him? King Saul? Remember that? And Samuel thought, oh, wow, this guy's pretty sharp. But yet, the Lord told Samuel, don't consider the appearance or his height, for I've rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. But you know the thing that Christian parents most should desire for their children is that their children know who Jesus is. I watched 25 to 30 men yesterday file by a casket at Lifeway Baptist Church, the casket of a man named Don Sink. Every one of those men had um, been a part of the Saul to Paul ministry at some point in time in the past. Some were, were there present with him now. And if you did not realize that Don had passed away, uh, he lost his battle with uh, COVID-19, which some delightfully ignorant people assume this is a myth or something that's going around the country. COVID-19 is very real. And if you've got friends that are naive, just tell them, tell them about Don. He was a vibrant Christian leader, but it attacked his lungs. Uh, he was in his mid-50s, and he fought it and fought it and fought it and fought it, and he was in the hospital in and out of ICU, and he finally told his sweet wife, he said, I'm done with this. I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm not going to go back and forth and back and forth. Just, just, you know, I'm, I'm ready to go home to Jesus. And he did. Amidst a tremendous celebration of life that we shared in. Uh, life, if you've been to Lifeway Baptist Church, the place was packed. And I got such a, an insight into this whole idea. You know, Don was raised by, by parents that loved the Lord, but he rebelled like crazy. If you, ever know, if you ever met Don, he kind of looks like he's rebellious. In fact, if I was going to be a guy and I want to go hang out with somebody and I want to be rebellious, I'd go if I hang out with Don. But the trick is, is that Don uses that, but then when he gets him in there, he says, now you need to know Jesus, and he won't let up. <laughs> he, he just stays on him. And I'm not kidding you. This man has, no one will know till, till heaven the impact that he had on so many. And uh, our, fa- our very family has been touched by his ministry. I just, uh, we were good friends, and he, he'd bring the guys that come over here, you know. And I used to tease him. I said, Well, once we quit serving donuts, we haven't seen you guys for a while. <laughs> and he said, Well, when you get the donuts, we'll be back. So as a. <laughs> and we'd laugh, you know. But they were, they were doing all they could do to maintain. A sanctuary there too, because every place people gather is a kind of a risky thing. And uh, he was so committed to those men. And uh, three different ministries exist because of his vision. There's one here in Bloomington or Ellettsville, rather, one in Bedford. There's another stage of uh, Saul to Paul that's in Indianapolis. All taking men through different stages of how to know God, love people. Be responsible, and it's it's just incredible. And uh, our church supports them, and will continue to. I support them personally, but you know th- this is a this is why I'm talking to you about this, this particular message. Is, is about you know Don said he operates everything by prayer. That's what he does. 
They just pray. If they need something, they pray for it. He's never asked anybody for any money. If you've ever been by the the, uh, the property there on the road to, to Spencer, if you've seen the big red barn that's there on your right, there's a cross in the yard up you can see it by the road. Everything there has been provided by God. Everything. People have stopped and given them checks. They don't know who these people are. They pray about their needs, and God delivers. And and I want I cannot tell you the impact that this has had, you know, on the men that are there. I know one of those men is there right now, real well, and he's just—it's almost night and day difference, night and day. Lead your child to God by prayer, but you then you lead him by, by intent. What should you most desire, though, as one wise parent stated? Parents, you and I are in a different world. Our responsibilities is to prepare our children for a world where we cannot go. Not so they'll be rich or famous or happy, but so that they will know the Lord Jesus Christ. Every parent must consistently and constantly evaluate what he or she really wants for their children. And I would say grandchildren as well. I've got grandchildren I have concerns about. How they're going to fare in this crazy world. And then we communicate those desires and we do it in love. And, and, uh, and as Jesus said in Matthew 16, what good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? You keep beating them with that message. I mean, not beat them really. They may need to be. But no, that's not the way to do it. What you do is you emphasize and you, you say it. And you know how best to make the difference? Is you just live it. You let people see you and they'll say, wow, you know, their motto is, what well, is it good for a man to gain everything in the whole world but lose your soul? So we've talked about you commit your child to God by prayer, you lead your child by intention. And then number three, are you ready? You release your child. By faith. Most difficult day in Hannah's life had to be the day when she took Samuel by the hand, took him all the way up to Shiloh, which was not close, and they walked in there, introduced him to Eli, the priest, and then she walked away. She walked home alone. I can't imagine. If you're a mom here today, I know you can't. If you've ever experienced taking a child to their first day of kindergarten or first day of college, doesn't make any difference either one. You know, you're still the same way. If you've ever experienced taking your first, your child loading up their belongings in a U-Haul and watching them drive out of the driveway, our daughter, uh, who's always a little risky behind the wheel of a car, was so excited to get away that when she took off out of the driveway, she blew out a tire. <laughs> Because she ran over a big boulder rock thing. I had along. So she hadn't even left the property. And I'm always already out there fixing her tire. And I thought, this child needs to just stay right here at home. <laughs> Save us a lot of money. But it's tough to do. One psychologist has said it's the basic job of the parents to get the children out of our lives. That's a secular psychologist. But many parents make the mistake of trying to hold on to your children too long even making them feel guilty for move, about moving from home or getting married or, or not visiting their parents frequently enough. So here's the truth. 
The first priority of the parents, you raise your children to know the Lord Jesus. And the second priority is to release them at the proper time into Jesus' arms. Give them back to Jesus. He gave them to you. You give them back to him. It takes a lot of faith on the part of the parents. And that's risky. And I understand that. I've had to do this a few times. And I don't think I did a good job either time. But it's always risky when a ship leaves the harbor. But that's what ships are for. It's always risky when an airplane leaves the runway. But that's what airplanes do. That's what they're for. And it's risky when you release your child unto the Lord. And it takes faith that God will take care of your child. But ultimately that's why the child was born. It wasn't a gift to you just to do with as you wished. It was a sacred trust granted to you. That you and I are responsible to someday give account for how we've done with our children. So commit your child to God in prayer. Lead the child by showing him your godly intentions for life. And release your child by faith. We're going to have a, a baptismal service, as has already been mentioned. And uh, you will get your children in this building. You won't have to go across to get your kids because the kids are coming over here. And so after they come in, you'll see them in the back. Uh, and after our baptism today, then uh, the children will be in the, in the foyer area with the, the, the leaders there, and you can, you can get your children there instead of going over to the CE building. It's going to take just a minute for us to get set up, and I think David's going to come up and hum or strum or sing a minute, and then we'll have everybody here. You need to turn your attention, if you're not familiar, to the black curtain, which will be moved out of your way here in just a minute.